And pray with me, please. Lord, we just sung it with the psalmist. And so we ask that you would still our spirits, open our hearts, and give us wills to respond to your good word. We want to know you, and you reveal yourself to us in your word. So now, again with the psalmist, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Greetings in the name and the spirit of Jesus Christ. As always, it's a gift to be with you to open God's word. And if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Joel Borsma. I'm the college pastor at Pillar. And since I had the opportunity to preach here last, I had what you might call a major life event. And I'm going to give you a little insight into that. So there we are, Megan and I, just a few weeks ago. Thank you very much. Just down the road, Dibnit Chapel on Hope's campus. Where else would you want to get married? Look at that happy couple. <laughs> Just awesome. With all the authority of 23 days of marriage, I can say that I highly recommend it. <laughs> we had a golden day, and we've been so blessed and encouraged by the entire Pillar community, you have shared in our joy, and we are so grateful. And so with the psalmist, we say our cups overflow. So thanks for allowing me the brief detour, because now we're on to the good stuff. Back to our Bibles and the Acts of the Apostles. Hear the word of the Lord from the book that we love. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him to send letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and a light from heaven shone all around him, and as he fell to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and there you will be told what you are to do. Now the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand, and they led him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord appeared to him in a vision and said, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. 
For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him that he might regain his sight. And Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man and all the evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name to the Gentiles and kings and to the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he is to suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And he laid his hands on him. And he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, sent me that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Now, for some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately, he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who saw it were amazed, saying, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem for all who called on his name? And is this not the purpose for which he came, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, proclaiming that Jesus was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's how St. Luke, master storyteller and patron saint of church historians, presents the conversion of Saul, more famously known to history as Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. If, if you've been around Pillar at all this summer, some of us have been tag-teaming the acts of the apostles under the heading, God on the Loose, a one-liner from Neil Plattinga's book, Under His Wings. Acts is the dramatic sequel to the Gospels, getting us on the ground of the early church's mission to bring the name of Jesus to the ends of the earth. The life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus and the sending of his Holy Spirit has therefore launched an invasion those chosen men and women now borrowing from preacher and teacher Fleming Rutledge under orders from God to proclaim the crucified Messiah as the Lord of the universe burns so brightly with the flame of the gospel that the entire Mediterranean world was soon alight with the name of Jesus Christ. The transformation of that ragtag bunch of disciples into a fearless force for the conversion of the world is one of the strongest arguments for the truth of the resurrection. Some of those among that fearless force for the gospel, Peter and John and James, 
leaders among the twelve. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Philip, the utility man, evangelist, deacon, and missionary. And then there's Stephen, looking a whole lot like the Lord, even unto death, full of grace and power and forgiveness. His last words echoing Christ from the cross. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. At the martyrdom of Stephen is also where Saul comes onto the scene. Looking now at Acts chapter 8. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that, great, on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And Saul was ravaging the church. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So given that context, we might say with the great Southern novelist Flannery O'Connor, I reckon that the Lord knew the only way to make a Christian out of that one was to knock him off his horse. So here's one of Caravaggio's masterpieces. Gary and Peggy Nielsen actually put me onto this. They just returned from a trip to Rome where they saw this live and in person. There's actually no horse mentioned in the text, but I think imaginatively we can get there. So in the short time we have together, I'd love for us to take a look at Saul's passionate pursuit, which led to a dramatic encounter resulting in a completely new man. So first, what do you make of Saul's passionate pursuit of those on the way, one of Luke's main descriptors for followers of Jesus? That's how today's text begins, looking now at verse 1. But Saul, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest so that he could bind anyone who declared Jesus as Lord. Saul, as we've established, is on the scene at Stephen's death, which was no isolated act of violence. And it's crucial to name this. Saul's passionate pursuit to imprison followers of Jesus is in the context of violent persecution. Those who belong to the way are hunted and scattered into Judea and Samaria, those very places of fulfillment of Jesus' words just before he ascends into heaven. And Saul's pursuit will widen the scope of that persecution from Jerusalem to Damascus and beyond. So like Jesus' dealings in the Gospels with the scribes and the Pharisees, Saul is not just having an off day. He is voluntarily entrenched in a system that is like a closed world, a sealed room in which no light and no fresh air can get in from the outside. Sound familiar to anything we might see today? Systems that do violence and make havoc in all shapes and sizes. With the early church in Acts 4, we do well to pray Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? And Saul staked his entire identity 
on this pursuit. Here he is reciting his own resume in a different place in Scripture, Philippians chapter 3. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's a pretty bold claim, isn't it? Saul's passion and pursuit, not merely the victim of the system, that's playing a part, but not merely that. Saul had great personal pride at stake in his own credentials. So now it's about time that we turn the tables, isn't it? Saul's a cautionary tale for all of us, as all of us are quite capable of being trapped in systems that do violence, and all of us are quite capable of personal pride, what C.S. Lewis called the great sin. Passions and pursuits and pride, the things we love and hold most dear, can even start out as good and noble with the best of intentions. But unless they're connected to Jesus, they can and will go bad on us. We may, wrote Lewis elsewhere, give our human loves the unconditional allegiance which we owe only to God. Then they become gods. Then they become demons. Then they will destroy us and also destroy themselves. For natural loves that are allowed to become gods do not remain loves. They are still called so, but can become, in fact, complicated forms of hatred. Saul's fundamental allegiance, to be clear, was rooted in a zealous passion for the God of Israel, but had gone all wrong, and it's worth considering for us. What are the passions and pursuits where we're like Saul? Those things that we need to submit to the Lordship of Jesus. Could be a change of daily habit, starting out the day in God's Word rather than scrolling the headlines on the iPhone. Might mean recommitting to Christ at the center of a relationship. It might even mean, heaven forbid, a change of mind or posture relating to politics. Even good and noble pursuits can be sabotaged, is the point. And we see it in Acts chapter 9. Saul's pursuit entrenched in a violent system. His passion warped by personal pride, which ultimately led to his fall in a dramatic encounter. Now looking at verse 3. As he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and he heard a voice. And who was it? Jesus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? So much happening in this encounter, I don't even know where to start. Jesus Christ, let's start there. Jesus Christ, light from true light, addressing Saul by name. In his very own love language, that of the Bible. Saul, Saul, along the same narrative grain as Abraham, Abraham in Genesis 22, Jacob, Jacob. Genesis 46, Moses, Moses, Exodus 3. 
the, the encounter, that is to say, is not an isolated event either. It's in the long line of the unfolding drama of God saving purposes, God making good on his promises to Abraham through Jacob and Moses and Israel, enlisting even Saul with murder on his breath, pride in his heart, even Saul, the chief of sinners, to reconcile all things to Christ. And in fact, the only word in the entire text we get from Saul is a question. Who are you, Lord? And if there's a common thread for every conversion story, this could be it. Who are you, Lord? And in a sense, the question harmonizes with what we just got a chapter earlier with the Ethiopian eunuch's pursuit when he read Isaiah 53. About whom? Does the prophet speak about himself or about someone else? Not all of us with integrity can claim a road to Damascus conversion story, but we can claim and pursue this question, who are you, Lord? Because I'm a college pastor, as I mentioned, a lot of my dealings are with Hope students, and I often reflect on my own time as a student. When I got to Hope as a freshman, I had a series of encounters that were like many conversions. There was a baptism of my intellect. Professors like Mark Husbands, who taught at Hope at the time, who assigned the Christian classics like Augustine and Kelvin and Boethius. There was sitting under chaplains who preached Christ in the wide open country of grace. There were providential friendships that I made at Hope and remain to this day. Some of those guys stood at my wedding just a few weeks ago, fellow travelers on the way. Saul's question in verse 5, who are you, Lord, is a conversion question, and it launches us all out of the great adventure of following Jesus. But other than Saul's question, I wonder if you noticed this, Saul is relatively passive. Saul encounters Jesus, but from there, he's basically at the mercy of everyone else, led by the hand into Damascus. Ananias then sent to lay hands on Saul. Ananias calls him brother. He regains his sight, is baptized, and breaks bread with his former enemies. While Saul is open to God with an honest question and then subsequent prayer and fasting, he is relatively passive. The Spirit, conversely, is very much active through the church in the name of Jesus. It's the pattern of grace, wrote the novelist Charles Williams. We shall be graced by one and all, but never by ourselves. The only thing that can be ours is the fiery blush of the laughter of humility when the shame of Adam has become the shyness of the saints. It's the action of grace catalyzed by Christ in a series of encounters leading to a completely new man. Looking now at verse 19. For some days, Saul was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. 
Again, worth noting the brilliance of Luke's storytelling here and the creative and life-giving ways of the Holy Spirit. Saul, again, with murder on his breath, after three days, sound familiar? Three days, he dies with Christ, is raised with Christ, and goes on to proclaim Christ with anyone with an ear to hear. The man who set out to bind the one belonging to the way becomes a prisoner on behalf of Christ. God's chosen instrument, he will not merely be Saul, a Hebrew name, but Paul, a Latin name, connoting his call to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. The story is not simply a conversion. It is that, but not simply that. It's also a vocation. Saul is a new man with a new message, and it's good news for all. If anyone is in Christ, we heard it earlier, there is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come, and all of this is from God, who has reconciled to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Not just a conversion, but a vocation. The call is Saul's and the call is ours. The ministry of reconciliation. Last week, Wednesday, I got the privilege of sitting out on Pillar Lawn with a 2019 Hope College grad, Hannah Marie Wallen, formerly Hannah Marie Grimm. During her time at Hope, she recognized her. She was a Pillar stalwart and we also got the opportunity to co-lead a spring break service trip together down to Florida. And now she has a role similar to mine with InterVarsity at one of the Penn State satellite campuses. And as we compared notes in our conversation, I got a real sense that we were living the Acts story in real time. Conversions, baptisms, inductive method, Bible studies, I don't know if you are familiar with John Stott's method, which became famous. I think you swiped that from Philip in Acts 8, though, Philip the Evangelist. All college students encountering Jesus. And later this summer, Hanmarie gets to travel to Jakarta, Indonesia to attend InterVarsity's World Commission to meet with students and gospel laborers from all over the world. How jealous are you? I was pretty jealous listening to Hannah Marie talk about that. And I submit to you, there is an unbroken link between Hannah Marie heading off to Jakarta, Indonesia, and the ministry of reconciliation given to Saul and all of the apostles in Acts and all who are followers of Jesus. Saul was a new man with a new message, and it's good news for all. It's for college campuses, it's for university meetings, and it's for wherever God calls you and equips you at Gentex, Holland Gateway Mission, Holland Hospital, Conversation on the Lawn, Lomangelo's Coffee Shop, in town for the 4th of July. I trust you're getting the point in your work or in your play, in whatever you do, in word or in deed, 
Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I find it both fascinating and completely fitting that Saul keeps his secular profession as a tent maker as he becomes an apostle to proclaim the name of Jesus. But that is a sermon for another day. And here's the ultimate point. God is on the loose in every sector, in every relationship, any encounter in Jesus' name, nothing left outside of the reconciling, redeeming purposes of God in Christ. Amen? Give the last word to Lewis. Again and again, the world has thought Christianity was dying. Dying by persecutions from without and corruption from within. The rise of rival religions, the rise of the physical sciences, the rise of great anti-Christian revolutionary movements. But every time, the world has been disappointed. The man came to life again. And in a sense, that has been happening ever since. They keep on killing the thing that he started. And each time, just as they are putting down the earth on its grave, they suddenly hear that it's alive and it has even broken out into some new place. Out of ourselves and into Christ we must go. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.